So the date was June the 13th, 1782. Uh, Congress had just appointed a 53-year-old former Secretary of the Continental Congress to come up with a suitable de design for uh, America's Great Seal. So Charles Thompson was chosen, man who had already established himself as having a lot of integrity. He also happened to be a Latin teacher in Philadelphia at that time. So he goes to work with all the submissions that he had gotten for the Great Seal, but he finally settled on his own really bold design. And you know it if you've seen it. It's a great eagle with a big striped shield across its chest, and in its talons he's holding a, an olive leaf on one side and a, um, uh, 13 arrows on the other side. But in his beak, there's a large banner coming out that reads, E Pluribus Unum, out of the many, one. Which really, if you think about it, is a really interesting motto for a country to choose because in many ways, that really is the greatest challenge of any group of people, much less an entire nation. How do you get a group of very loosely associated people to start to act in unity with each other? Uh, and it's really a very compelling case, I think, that can be made that a lot of what we call human history is an attempt to work out this problem. Let me see if I can illustrate for you. Let's imagine, God forbid, uh, that we are, find ourselves a time of war and the president reinstitutes the draft. Well, you'll find whether people are more unity people or individual people in the face of that whole experience, right? The, the unity people will say, hey, the, the chief, commander in chief has given us a command. Uh, my job is to say yes, we go and we serve. The individual people will be like, well, wait a minute. Is this a just war? Uh, can I serve in good conscience in this war? So you see how that'll break down into people who see us being more essentially as a unity versus people who see us being as more individuals. But here's the deal. When you disagree, there's a lot of conflict that's going to come out of that. Well, philosophers have referred to this over the years as the problem of the one and the many. And we're talking about this because we finally come to this big turning point in our study. Uh, Ephesians 4.1 says this, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy. You've heard me say before that every time you see the word therefore, you want to look and realize that there's a connection that's being made. Paul is seeming two things together uh, that he's piecing together. And that's how the whole book lays out. And I realize this has kind of been frustrating for some of you because we've talked a lot about a lot of theology lately. Um, but up until this time, Paul has not really given us anything to do. And for a lot of you are like, you know... There you go. You Christians are talking about all this high-minded theology, but you're not giving me anything practical. Well, buckle up. The chapters to come will have plenty of practical application as we get to them. But before we dive in here, what I want you to sort of notice is in that order, by separating Ephesians out that way, is something really fundamental about Christianity. Because in Christianity, we establish our identity first, and then we talk about obedience in other words, for every other religion, it's reversed. In other words, the things that you do establish who you are. You know, you follow these rules and you'll become wise. You know, live by this principle and you'll attain to perfection. But in Christianity, obedience is always a result of something that's been constituted in your being, in your identity. And that gives the reason for the shape of Paul's letters, because he said in the first three chapters, you were united with Christ, you were raised with him, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, on the basis of what's been constituted in you, here's how to live. Here's how to live a life, Paul says, worthy of doing that. Okay, so pause for just a second. What do you think Paul is about to start talking about? Again, he's given this incredibly elegant and mystical and sweeping doctrinal statement about the Christian life. 
what's going to be his first topic. Maybe expect him to talk about the importance of holiness or how we should show brotherly love to our fellow man. But actually, the what he goes to first should tell us about what Paul cares about the first. And are you ready for what it is? Unity. (laughs) Paul thinks that the crest of everything that you need to talk about when it comes to this beautiful gospel that he's unfolded is about our unity. In other words, he's talking about the problem of the one and the many. How can you become one people with so much diversity around you? Now, my guess is that surprises you. But you got to realize that Paul thinks it's that important. And what I want to pitch to you this morning is Christianity is unique in the way it conceives of this compared to all other world religions. How so? Well, that's what I want to unpack this morning using three uh, topics. The first one is this. We first of all need to come to an understanding of what unity is. Second of all, we need to embrace the diversity that God has established among us. And then thirdly and finally, we need to grow up into maturity. So those three things. Let's stop dive into that first one, verses 1 through 6, where we're trying to understand our unity. Okay, look, if you read through these verses, Paul gives this list of ones and list of alls throughout verses uh, 4 through 6. Now, before we move on, remember that numbers here, Paul is using in a very clever way. When I was in seminary, we studied a book uh, titled Numbers in Scripture. It's Supernatural Design and Spiritual Significance by a guy named E.W. Bullinger. And the book was like 300 pages worth of theological importance about how Jewish people thought about numbers. You've heard me talk about this before. The the number one is a primary symbol of unity. Uh, Two is a number of divisions and conflict or even the number of witnesses. Three, though, is a number four for what's solid. Uh, substantial, entire. Four, we've said before, is the number of creation. You've got the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. Six is the number of imperfection, while seven is a number of perfection, a whole number in their thinking. And of course, 12 gets a lot of press. You've got 12 tribes, 12 disciples, which really stands for a number of fullness, like everyone they're supposed to be. And the reason why I keep going back to this is because if you'll remember that, it'll keep you from making a lot of bad interpretations about the Bible. Okay, so now we're ready to read verses 4 through 6. Listen to this. Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, pause there for a second. Paul repeats the word one. Did you notice how many times? Seven times. He also uses the word all four times. And almost every commentator I read said, there's no way that this is a coincidence. One of my favorites, James Montgomery Boyce, actually says this. He says, Paul, in a typically Hebrew style, is trying to make a point. And here it is. The created order can only find its perfection by being joined to God within the church. Now, what does he mean? Well, bear with me for a second, because I kind of want to get a little philosophical here at the moment, because I think actually it's only in Christianity that you have the possibility of knowing real unity. Why do I say that? Well, bear with you for a moment. Has it ever occurred to you that it really is only in the Christian conception of God where relationship is intrinsic to God's being? Look, Paul says that you have received the Spirit of God and been brought into the fellowship of God's people. But here's the thing. The same Spirit that comes from God was not only in God's people, but also in Jesus. So what this means is if you are in union with Christ, like we've been talking about for weeks on this, it means that you are organically linked to the Trinity itself. 
remember our discussion last week, all those C.S. Lewis quotes about our destiny to be caught up into this glorious dance of fellowship among the members of the Trinity. Paul says it's the Spirit's bond that creates this. And you got to hear me, this is so different from the way other world religions think of it. You know, there are lots of religions that are what we would call polytheistic, uh, which means many gods. In other words, you have an idea of God, but you also have other gods. You have other forces, other powers that threaten that authority. So at the very center of being itself is almost like a cosmic instability. In other words, when there's conflict at the center of your view of reality, what does that mean for the way you live? There's other people, though, uh, again, to use another big word, that are monotheistic. That means one God. In other words, there's only one God and only one person in God. But here's the problem with that. In that conception of God, if you have an idea of relationship, it's got to be imported after the fact. And it's not inherent to who God is. But here's the deal. Christian theologians have been very careful to define the nature of God as three persons, but one essence, one will, one heart, all working together. In other words, at the very heart of a Christian's conception of, of reality itself in God is relationship. It's fundamental to everything that we talk about. So now you can understand the crux of Paul's argument. He's saying, look, how can you think that you're going to relate to a God who is a community inside his own definition without living in harmony with the people who are claiming to be powerfully connected with him? Do you see this dilemma? Of course, his answer is saying, you can't. You will never have unity until you are connected to this God who has unity and diversity in his own self-definition. It's fascinating. It may be a little more philosophical for somebody than others, but let's try to apply this before we dive into this. Look, the the Bible assumes that you're going to be making every effort to learn how to get along with other people. I'll say it this way, the establishment and the preservation of unity, it is the business of Christianity. There is nothing else at the forefront because it's the first thing Paul mentions. Um, it's amazing how often I think in our little Christian subcultures, we get really bent out of shape about really kind of silly things. But again, if Paul is to be believed, unity ought to be the first thing we're interested in. Okay, so how does this work out? Well, there's two ways. I want to mention a macro and a micro application in this regard. First of all, in the big picture, Christians are called to be concerned about the unity of God's worldwide people. Paul says we are to be eager to maintain that unity. Now, look, if you've been paying attention, for the last hundred years, there have been tons of attempts at trying to create unity among Christian people worldwide. And honestly, mostly they've failed. And you have to try to answer the question why that was the case I believe the reason is, is because mostly unity movements are not based around common theological agreement and confessions. Let's see if I can illustrate this. Look, verses 4 through 6, commentators believe, formed a very early Christian confession of belief, like a, like a catechism answer to a question. And what I find is, is mostly times when people start talking about unity, they want it based upon like a unity for unity's sake, you know, um, But here's the deal. Paul doesn't try to detach our call for unity without being around a certain confession about what is true about what we believe. Okay, so there'll be some of you that'll be old enough to remember what happened 30 years ago uh, when, you know, in in Los Angeles, when the riots were going on surrounding the Rodney King issue. And at one point during the whole conflict, uh, the... um, 
the people put Rodney King on television. He got up and he stood and made an appeal to the, to the world. He's like, hey, can't we all just get along? And it occurs to me that's kind of been the sensation that we bring to Christian unity. Like, hey, can't we all just sort of get along? But the bottom line is the Bible is not talking about unity that is fundamentally motivated by our goodwill towards unity. Theological study, learning what it is of what the Bible actually teaches is completely foundational to that. You know, I do realize that like there's a, there's a sense in which you got to look at your reputation as a church sometimes. Um, and I realize that there's a lot of folks that look at what we do at Christ Pres and are like, you know what? We're out here working on A, B, and C, and there you guys are at Christ Presbyterian Church explaining things. And you know, you know what? Maybe, maybe we deserve some of that. But please understand something, that our desire to explicate carefully the Word of God and all of its theological beauty is a hope for unity. So that as we see what the Bible teaches, it brings us together. But it's not just on the big scale. I do think Christians have to be concerned about unity on a micro scale as weather as well. I realize that for a lot of us, you know, we, we get really fixated on what I've heard one preacher call uh, sins of the flesh. Um, we, we get really bothered by misguided sexuality, uh, people who drink too much, uh, people who use foul language. But you got to understand that the Bible is far more concerned with what I would call the sins of the heart. I mean, it's very possible that there's all kinds of people that would look across and see someone and be deathly offended at the fact that they've maybe had too much to drink. <laughs> but who, in response to that, proceed to go and talk about that person behind their back and thereby destroy the unity that God calls us to have. Okay, so Paul thinks that that sin is actually higher up on God's offensiveness scale than the drunkenness that the other person is displaying. Look, these little squabbles that we have with each other, they are serious. <laughs> and getting right with people, humbling ourselves before them, patiently walking people through conflicts, that's actually what Paul is the most concerned about. Okay, so that's the first point, that we need to understand what unity is. But secondly, though, we really need to embrace diversity. So I had a, a student at the University of Memphis years ago come and tell me that he was walking away from Christianity because he didn't like the idea that Christians always said that we were supposed to be little Christs. You ever heard people talk about that? It's actually what a Christian is, is a little Christ. And he was like, I just don't like that, Les, because what about diversity? If we all become little Jesuses, I, I think that Christianity is just going to create these, these mindless automatons where we don't have any real difference. Well, my first thing was to go look up the word automaton. Um, the second thing was to realize I actually don't think that's a fair critique. It's a fairly immature understanding of Christianity because Christianity is saying that you actually can't have unity without a vital diversity. The trick is how you understand what diversity really is. Let me see if I can unpack this, uh, especially as we start to look at these verses. You know, my wife um, regularly subjects me to uh, Jane Austen movies. And I'm not afraid to put it out there on the Internet that I've come to enjoy some of them. My favorite at this point uh, is called Sense and Sensibility. Uh, and again, spoiler alert, the two sisters actually end up marrying their sweethearts at the very end uh, at a wonderful double wedding. Uh, well, as one of the couples, the younger sister, climbs up into the, the, the wedding carriage with uh, Colonel Brandon, Colonel Brandon pulls out a little pouch and he reaches in and grabs a bunch of coins and he throws it up into the sky and allows all the people around him to kind of scoop it up, all these passers-by. It's a really strange little ritual. Why did he do that? Well, it turns out this was actually an old custom for people during weddings as their way of saying, look, I have been so blessed today that I want for all these other people to share in the treasure that I've discovered. 
I've actually read in other places that in some places in Europe, whenever there was a, a new king or queen that was crowned, they would do the same thing. They would distribute gifts throughout the kingdom. Okay, so with that in mind, now read verse 8. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Okay, look, the image there is one of a king who has just ascended to his throne. He's leading his freed captives in his wake. And when he does, he reaches into his bag and he begins to throw gifts out to men. It turns out that this is where that wedding tradition came from. So, so think of the image. When Christ ascends to the throne of the universe after the resurrection, he formed the people of God. And when he did, he began to distribute among them the gifts that are listed there in verse 11 and 12. Look what Paul listed. He says, there are apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And all of these things are ways to celebrate. Wonderful little quote from a guy named Sinclair Ferguson who says, yours and my giftedness in Jesus is Jesus' way of celebrating his triumph over the powers of darkness. Okay, follow Paul's reasoning here. Paul is saying, I want you to live a life worthy and ironically, by achieving the unity that shows that you're living that life worthy, God has given you the diversity of gifts as a way to preserve that. So in Christianity, our diversity is not opposed to our unity, but it's foundational to it. How, how can that be? That's usually the problem. Okay, but look, brace yourself because this is really beautiful. Did you notice that all of those gifts in that list are serving gifts? In other words, they're gifts that are not intended, uh, that are intended for everyone to participate in so that they are giving life back to the church. Okay, look, this is the second plank in the solution to the problem of the one and the many. In other words, not only is unity sort of intrinsic in the very self-definition of God, but God has instituted his people with an instinct in them to serve. There is a vital connection between a body that has unity and a body that's serving each other. Hey, look, I will bet you $5 that if you grew up in a church that was constantly fighting and disagreeing and bickering, they were probably not a serving church. Uh, they were probably never involved in the lives of actual real people. In other words, the best way to achieve this unity in the bonds of peace is to get out of our own heads and start serving people. It's the best way to cure the problems that exist in these things. And by the way, this is true for your friendships as well. Um, I'm going to bet you that the majority of the sort of squabbles and infighting that we find ourselves in, they happen when we get the most bored with our lives, don't they? You know, you get so self-absorbed and somewhere along the way you're like, you just get tired that my needs are not getting met and my issues are not being addressed. And so you start to wreak havoc. And what happens? Unity breaks down. And so Paul is saying, look, it's only when we begin to use these gifts that God has given to each of us to serve one another that you start to work against the tyranny of our selfishness. Which brings you to my third question. How do you get rid of that selfishness? So first point was understand unity. Second point was to embrace diversity. Third, we need to grow into maturity. Okay, look, you get free from your selfishness when you get mature. And by the way, Paul has a very specific definition of maturity. And it's basically this, don't be a child, grow up. Paul says that if you're a child, then here's what you are. Verse 14, you are tossed to and fro by the waves 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, look, that tossed to and fro, that's a nautical image of seasickness. Um, have you ever been seasick? I have. And I can tell you, there is nothing worse. Uh, I was on a sailing trip, um, wow, a couple decades ago now, I guess, uh, where I got seasick for a day. And I, I usually tell people that there are two stages to uh, seasickness. Stage one is where you think that you're going to die. Uh, stage two is where you wish that you were dead. <laughs> it is horrible to be sick, seasick. And the reason why is this. It's because the disorientation, it comes from the inside. It doesn't matter that you can look out and see the land on the horizon. Your inner ear doesn't know that. Uh, it, all it can see is the back and forth, right? The instability. Okay, so Paul is saying that immaturity, therefore, is spiritual seasickness. When you're a spiritual child, the only thing that you can focus on is the next fad, the loudest voice that's around you. In other words, there's no internal equipment to kind of filter through the bad ideas that end up coming and doing this. They come and they hijack your sense of calm. And you know what you become in the midst of that? You become anxious and you become fretful. And the second when anxiety and a sense of loss infects an entire group of people, unity is on its way out the door. And Paul says that is childishness and it needs to be grown out of. So the question then is, how do you combat that? <laughs> and here's the answer. Paul says that the answer is to be found by, quote, speaking the truth in love. You want to know how you grow up? Paul says that we have to be the kind of people who have learned to have the freedom uh, to speak powerfully into each other's lives about who we really are. Okay, here's the question I want to pose to you. When was the last time that you had the guts to ask someone else how it is that you come across to people? I, I realize most of us spend a lot of time kind of explaining to people what we really meant uh, or how they misunderstood us. But why do we ever ask people to say, no, no, seriously, how is it that other people people receive me. Do you think that you already know? Because I'll bet you that you're going to find you're your own worst judge. Uh, there's a lot of you out there that are inclined to give yourself way too much credit. You're way too easy on yourself when you start to do self-critique. Um, but here's the deal. Are, are you learning to hear from the outside? If not, you're never going to learn until you get somebody from the outside to speak to you. But there's other people on the other side that'll actually be way too easy on themselves or excuse me, way too hard on themselves. In other words, there's a lot of people that self-critique so badly that it's completely false. It's not true. So how do we come to something real? It's got to be from a word from the outside, which I realize terrifies most of you that I just said that to. But Paul understands that you really can't really have that kind of interaction and care for each other if it's not done, as he says, in love. In other words, you can never do this kind of personal critique to each other if it's done as a way to gain advantage for yourself. It doesn't work that way. But it's always got to be as a way to commit yourself to someone else. I know lots of people that are trying to you know, tell the truth to people, but this doing it in a hurtful way. This reminds me of this as a closing illustration. You know, our parenting has been quite a ride. And I can still remember when our children were very, very small. Uh, one of our children, I won't mention it, who it was to be embarrassed, but um, had finally learned to blow their nose. Uh, the problem was they learned to blow their nose inside their hand. 
And of course, they were so proud of themselves at two years old for blowing their nose into their hand that they kind of wanted a hug from their parents after they did so. <laughs> you felt that ambivalence, right? Where you're looking at your child, and you're kind of like, ah, I love you, but I can't be near you right now. So what do you do? Well, you lean down and you clean them up first, right? Why? So we can be close. In other words, I've got to confront you on your uncleanness, on this thing that's keeping us separate so that we can finally really be together. Look, you can tell that you're speaking the truth in love when the purpose of your confrontation is not to get rid of the person, but actually to get closer to them. And the way we do that is by avoiding those two extremes. To not be that person who's kind of a truth person. You know, you're, you know who you are. <laughs> you're truth people. You tell the truth. You push the truth. On the other hand, though, then there's love people that are kind of like, well, we don't hurt people's feelings. We've got to be super sugar-coated. But what happens is the truth people tend to be overly harsh and the love people sometimes never get around to confronting. This is the reason why I think in John chapter 1, verse 14, Paul say, or John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, ready for this, full of grace and truth. You see, look, in the cross, you have this ultimate confrontation. You have the ultimate truth speaking, don't you? God saying, this is what it takes for me to love you. This is the truth about your condition. It requires the death of my son. But that exact same action was also the supreme act of love because he's doing it all wise so he can draw us together to himself. Look, here's the point. And, and it's the reason why Christianity is the only one who has the resources for e pluribus unum, out of the many come one, because it's the only religion that has the cross. Because in the middle of the cross, you have both God's truth and his love in the same thing. It's the only way that we preserve our unity. And I, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse when I tell you that we're entering into a season in our church where there's just going to be so many opportunities for us to divide, to let resentments grow up, uh, to let this separation, this sort of enforced quarantine for all of us kind of get under our skin to where we start kind of getting bugged by each other, even though we don't even see each other. How do we combat that? We keep the cross at the center. And as soon as the church stops doing that, we've already lost any sense of unity. So my hope is, is as we start to work through this as a body of people, we entertain this thought that on the other side of this quarantine, on the other side of this great disaster that we're in the midst of right now, that we will be known for the people who actually maintain unity because the cross was at the center of everything that they did. Let's pray that God would make us to be that kind of community. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, would you come alongside all of us in the midst of our living rooms or wherever it is that we're watching these broadcasts? And Father, would you draw near to us by reminding us that you are the ultimate confronter, but you do so not out of, out of peevishness, but you do so because you want to be near us. Give us a sense of that, Father, even in this place of being physically separated from one another. Draw us near to you so that we see something unique and make us a body that's united, keeping us together even when we're apart. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. 